if you're paying attention, most of the time you will hear the sermon at least twice. And that song, by no accident, is really the perfect preparation and a lead-in to what we're going to talk about this morning. So I want to welcome you to worship on all three floors. And if you're watching remotely on the road or at home, my name is Eric Barton, and I get to pastor down here, and I'm so thankful and excited that I get to be the one to walk through this most marvelous and massive text as we're in our sermon series in the book of Titus. Our working theme thus far has been that grace works. Now, I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about your life from the moment that you really are capable of conscious, sentient thought all the way to the present moment. Because really, every single human person has uh, what I would call or what I would consider a two-volume set to your life. As you think about the bookshelf of your existence, maybe there's family, there's experiences, there's all these things, but then there's the book that's you on the shelf. And pretty much everybody in the whole history of humankind ever has a two-volume set in their story of their life. The first volume goes pretty much like this. It's the way we were. It is all of life, all of existence, all encounters, relationships, everything prior to conversion. That's the first volume, and we've all got it. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we have a tendency to think that we were born saved, and you were not. But then there's a second volume. That second volume post-conversion, where everything is changed, where the Son of God hunts us down by grace and goodness and mercy and brings us into, as Matt said, his family, his kingdom. And so the, the irreligious person who has previously been following the pattern of the world that whatever seems to work, whatever seems to feel good, that's what you do. Net of conversion, that person begins to see that there's actually glory and good and wisdom in virtue. Not only that, the religious person who previously, prior to conversion, was simply trying to follow the rules to sort of obligate God to give them good stuff, even the religious person begins to see that, no, there's actually joy and beauty and delight in pursuing this person whose name is Jesus. Now, the real tragedy, of course, is that, yes, there are many, many millions of people who never, ever live into the second volume of their story who they die, never ever crossing over to live in the second volume of their story. They, they live, they die in the first volume. But what's almost as bad is a whole bunch of people who have converted into the second volume of their story but are still living according to the first volume. You know people like this. Perhaps they shave in your mirror in the morning. You know people like this who have never really fully understood nor embraced that they're actually a second volume person, but they're still trying to make life work in the first volume, and it has not, has not, will never work. That second volume says, I'm from the future, living in the present because of what someone has done in the past. And so really, I want you to think about your life. If your life really is a two-volume set, the first thing you have to ask is, what volume am I actually living in? Not what I want people to think. What volume am I really living in today? And then, if you had to name that book, that two-volume book of your life, 
what would you name that book? Most great pieces of literature have something to do with one of the primary characters or the setting or the action that takes place, something like that. I will tell you, as I have thought through, prepared in, and prayed for all of this passage this morning, the story of my life, both volumes, goes like this. It also happens to be our big idea for the morning. It goes like this. I am a great sinner. Christ is a greater Savior. And that's the story of my life. Like you have no idea the depths of my depravity, the things that make it in between my ears and shoulder blades, the things that I'm capable of thinking and feeling would make a billy goat puke. True story. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a greater Savior. So we're going to unpack that in a marvelous, marvelous passage. If you've got your Bibles, please go to Titus chapter 3. If you hit Philemon, you've gone too far. We're in Titus chapter 3. While you're turning there, I want to remind you, this is our fifth Sunday in Titus. Lord willing, we'll conclude the book of Titus next Sunday. We've been talking about how this little book follows the pattern of Paul as he gives the gospel. That for Paul, born Saul of Tarsus, Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, studied under Gamaliel, there were two very clear and present ages. There was the existing present time of oppression, persecution, hardship, and suffering, and death. Ah, but there was the age to come that all Jews look forward to. Paul's gospel always follows the pattern that Jesus has grabbed the border and the boundary of that future kingdom and he has stretched it all the way back and pinned it into our present with the cross. So we live in the present as though the future has already dawned because it has. So let me read Titus chapter three. We're just gonna read these first seven verses and then we'll unpack this. Titus chapter three, beginning in verse one. Paul writing to his protege, Titus, on the island of Crete. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is God's word. This is the gospel. This is very good news. That is the gospel. It is the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. And so as Paul gives Titus this gospel charge of how to lead, how to be the church in this Gentile pagan setting, this island of Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean, Paul counsels Titus and he says, I want you to remind them. You know this already, but the vast majority of what we do in pastoral ministry is tell people, remind people of things that they already know. Like there's very rarely something I come up with and say, hey, did you know that... Mm, and you go, I had never heard that before. 45 years in church, I've never heard that, you know, Jesus was a man. Yes, you have. 
Yes, you have. Very rarely do I say something like that. Usually, I have to remind you or I get to remind you of things that you already know, but perhaps and probably you've functionally forgotten. That's how that usually works. There seems to be a bit of a gravity there. Incidentally, I'm going to cover so much in this passage, as much as I can, but I want to remind you that most of the meat of this passage, I can't get to. And so what we do is every Monday, we record a podcast upstairs, Matt and I, that's available to you midweek in an email. Be looking for that. We'll get some more deep dive explanation, some discussion on this, but I'm going to walk through this passage as quickly as I can. A lot of what we do is to remind people of what the Bible is telling them to do and be, but not in this sort of regulation-crushing, finger-wagging approach, because that never works. I might change your attitude. I might change your heart even for about 30 to 45 minutes, but by the time you're in your second Arby's roast beef and cheddar, you've forgotten everything I've told you. Instead, we hold up Jesus. This is him. This is his life. This is what he was like. This is the kind of things that he would say. These are the kinds of things that he would do. These are the kinds of things that he cared about. And he's given us his spirit so that we can go and walk around and live likewise. That's how we are to remind people of all these things. Remind them, he says. And then all these don't really need to be unpacked all that much. There's these seven categories of what it looks like to be a citizen. Now, you have to understand, Paul's writing to Titus who's on the island of Crete going, are you kidding me with this? These Cretans, they're like, uh, what's the word? What's the word? Cretans, they are knuckle draggers. They are famously deficient in all matters of civic obedience. They're a violent, brutish, crude people. And Paul says, right, that's volume one. But volume two says they get to walk around and like Jesus be like Jesus because they like Jesus. So he says, remind them to be submissive. All of these things, incidentally, are not things that come naturally. Every society, every people group, every civilization wants all of these things, but are utterly unable, under-equipped to accomplish them societally. Can't happen. Everybody wants these things. Listen to this list. To be submissive to rulers and authorities. Every leader would love that. To be obedient. Everybody would love that. To be ready for every good work. Would you not love to be the leader of a society in which every citizen was ready for every good work? I mean, that would be amazing. How's that gone for us for the last several thousand years? The biblical response is, wah, wah, wah. can't happen. See, everybody wants that, but no amount of education or economics or government program or policy or procedure or any sort of potentate can ever actually accomplish that. As it turns out, the Bible's right. The only thing that can make that work is grace. Grace works and nothing else does. So all these things he describes, it is a utopia. Now we think utopia is a myth and it doesn't exist. Not true. Utopia simply means good place. And the Old Testament is pointing towards it over and over again. It's coming. The king will bring the kingdom because he's a kingdom bringer. And it is utopia. But we cannot accomplish it on our own. That is an adventure in missing the point. And so he describes these categories that, again, are fairly self-explanatory obedient, ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward people that you like and think you might get something out of. Now, that's a bad translation. If you have that, you should scratch that out. Toward all people, all people. 
oftentimes, one of the ways you can study Scripture is by looking for what's called the fallen condition. What is the condition that is default in humanity that the writer, either Paul or David or Samuel or Moses or whomever, what is the fallen condition that they are addressing, that they're trying to correct in their readers? And what we find is all of these things have to be encouraged and reminded because they are not default. This is not the, the way typical people live typically. That's volume one kind of stuff. And so we have to be reminded, hey, 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 you're a volume two person. You live according to this template. And what is that template? It's Jesus. Now, I love what Paul does here in verse three and following. Four, because you have to remind them, Paul says, you have to remind them because we, we were all volume one kind of people, every single one of us, including me, the apostle Paul. Now, please catch this. Everybody's got volume one, whether you're religious, very moral and decent, or irreligious, totally immoral, depraved, and following the pattern of the world. You're all in there. That's Romans chapters one, two, and three. Whatever chapter, you're in there. Now, civilization and society and morality and behavior modificationism can somewhat sort of mask a lot of this depravity from volume one people groups, but only for a nanosecond. All it takes is one little crisis and everybody reverts back to lob the jungle immediately. See also March of last year and suddenly there's no more toilet paper in North America. How'd that happen? Everybody had to go get their own because there's this fear of, of, of limited resources. And there's a scarcity-based mindset, and I'm going to get mine even if I have to chew off your face and stab you with a potato peeler. I'm going to get my toilet paper. Where did that come from? I thought we were evolved intelligent species. Not so much. Not so much. So he says, for we ourselves were once, and this is sort of the inverse of what we've just seen in verses 1 and 2. This is default Volume one, living. Even from a guy like Paul, who was deeply religious and moral and rightly behaved, the core was no different from those people who were irreligious. For we ourselves were once foolish. That means not thinking like God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That is our default assumption. I can rise high. I can ascend. We were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is default human volume one politics. Please understand when I say politics, I don't mean what you think I mean. I don't mean the stuff that is played out on our TV screens that are red state, blue state stuff. That's not what I mean. That's partisanship. That's a whole different thing. I'm saying politics comes from Greek word, Polis is Greek. Politics is merely how people live together and share resources for the common good. That's all politics means. And so the kingdom of God is intensely political, not partisan. Don't misunderstand. Don't take me out of context and tweet. Well, my mind, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God is massively political because it has everything to do with the here and now of how people live together and share resources for the common good. Now, volume one kinds of people, you descend into chaos in no time. There's dumpster fires. There's all kinds of atrocities and heinous deeds carried out. Volume two people 
are like the Christians at the fall of the Roman Empire who at their own expense were adopting children who were tossed out on the garbage heap saying, this is what God did for me. This is what I will do for these discarded babies. And the Germanic tribes who were raiding said, woo, das ist gut spiel. That's German for that's a good story, which is where we get our word for gospel. It's a good story. Now that's what happens by default. See, it's grace that works. We're all volume one people by default, but something's happened. See, I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a greater savior. Now then, I will contend the greatest syntax in all of your Bible. By syntax, I mean word arrangement. Starts in verse four. But when, or but God. My two favorite words in all of scripture, but God. Here's a horrible situation. Here's an unwinnable battle. Here's a completely depraved context. Ha ah, but God. See, mankind has been the player in verses one to three. But now the only actor, the only player, the only performer for the rest of our passage is God himself. Because now we're being told about volume two. I am a great sinner. Christ is a greater savior. All those depraved default things that I do in my own nature, in my own strength. Ah, but verse four, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared. When the goodness, the goodness is this sort of my life for you, this intentionality of looking at you, leaning toward you, wanting your good above mine. When that goodness appeared, then it says this loving kindness. That's the translators of the ESV trying to help out a little bit and connect it to an Old Testament Hebrew word, chesed, which means loving kindness or covenant keeping love or covenant faithfulness, that kind of thing. And that's helpful and it's cute. That's not the word. This word that Paul uses here only happens once in the whole of the New Testament ever. And it's in this one verse. And as soon as I say it to you in Greek, you'll immediately know what it is in English because it's the same word. When the goodness and the philanthropia appeared. When the philanthropy of God appeared. You know what Jesus is? He is God's love of man personified. He is God's goodness. He is God's love of man personified, bound up in a single human being who is good. Where's God? Where's, look at Jesus. How much does God love me? Are you kidding? <laughs> look at Jesus, the substitute, the innocent, who for the sake of the guilty and the deserving goes to meet that fate. When the goodness and the philanthropy, the love of humanity appeared, all of that that is God, all of his goodness, all of his love of humanity is literally incarnate in Christ and it appeared, epiphane. We talked about this last week. Epiphane has this idea of, of manifesting, shining forth, showing forth. It's where we get our word for epiphany. If God's goodness and his love of humankind is out there, but it doesn't appear to us, it does us no good because where would we go to find it ever? Nowhere but it hunted us down while we were not looking. It came into our midst when the goodness and the love of humanity appeared in Christ. And then one of the most central verses in all of your Bible, when God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He did a thing. Not, see, 
Paul writes in such a way that I like because I agree with it. And it's how my brain works. You see, you can't merely define things simply by what they are. To really define a thing completely, you have to also explain very carefully and clearly what it is not. We call that the apophatic approach. You say, this is what it is, this is this. It's not that, 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 and that. God saved us. Not, he says, because of our deeds done in righteousness. That, 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 that has nothing to do with salvation. All your goodness, all the good, moral, decent, swell things that you did in volume one had nothing to do with you getting volume two. Like nothing. And let me point out what Paul says here in verse five. He saved us not because of works done in legalism. No, in righteousness. This was stuff that was actually properly motivated. It was right. It was actually good. We did it from a, from a clean heart. Had nothing to do with God saving us. God saved you. Why? I don't know. He had his reasons and you aren't it. Now that's an important thing to remember. You were volume one all the day of your life until Jesus said, no, no, no. Welcome to volume two. This is your life. Not by deeds and righteousness, but according to, not out of his own mercy, according to his own mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And it took all of God's infinite mercy to save the likes of me and you. Don't sit there looking so pious because the same is true of you. It took all of his mercy, not giving me what I, what I deserve and instead redirecting it and deflecting it to his own son on the cross according to his mercy. By two agencies of his salvation. Now, I'm, I, I need to and I want to geek out on this for just a moment. He says, by the two agencies of salvation, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What is going on? This is one of the most central verses in all your Bible. Not according to the stuff that we have done. He did this by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The word regeneration here appears here and only one other time in your entire Bible. It happens in the Gospel of Matthew, and it is spoken by Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. It's nearing the end of his public ministry, and Jesus is telling the disciples, these Jewish boys in Palestine, that it is very difficult for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. And Peter, oh, you got to love Peter, redheads. Peter says... Well, rich people, fine, but I mean, what about us, Jesus? We've left everything to follow you. What about us? And Jesus responds, Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, the word is regeneration. In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This word is polygenesia. It's again, Genesis. Has the idea of new birth, of starting again, new world, regeneration. Paul is taking the words of Jesus in Matthew and saying, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Not literally. Wow. Jesus said the coming kingdom would be characterized by you Jewish boys sitting on 12 thrones judging the nation of Israel. But until then, but until then, I'm going to drag the boundaries and the borders of that kingdom back and overlap. And even people <laughs> on Crete 
will be heirs of Messiah. Now that doesn't flummox us like it should, but please remember, Crete is listed in Genesis as the origin of what becomes Israel's enemies, the Philistines. Goliath and his six-fingered, six-toed brothers are Philistines. They come from the island of Crete. What Paul's now telling them is, oh my goodness, we thought he was just establishing the kingdom for Israel out there one day, but instead Jesus has surprised us all. He's dragged it back. The new world is not just someplace out there in the future. He's grabbed it and he's pulled it back with his own life. He is Jacob's ladder on which angels ascend and descend. It's him. He's the conduit. He has shrunk heaven and brought it to earth and vice versa. The new world, the regeneration has begun already and it even includes the descendants of people like Goliath. Now that's very good news because otherwise yokels like me in East Texas have no shot. See, I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a greater savior. He has brought this new world in and Paul picks up on that and he writes this epistle to this pagan Gentile church on the island of Crete, the origin of the Philistines and says, you guys, You come from Goliath and his six-fingered bros. You're in. What an amazing, massive majesty Messiah has done. But wait, there's more. You people, he says, it's marvelous. This washing of regeneration. It's easy to keep this in mind because Titus 3.5 meets up exactly with John 3.5. What does this washing of regeneration mean? People have been confused about this for centuries. Is this talking about water baptism? Absolutely not, and of course not, and it can't be. You might remember in John chapter three in the gospel, Jesus has an encounter with Nicodemus at night, which is why we call it Nick at night. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, hey, I don't really understand what all is happening here. I don't understand what you're doing. What's going on? And Jesus says, Nicky, 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 how do you not get this? You're Israel's teacher. You gotta be born again by the spirit. And Nicodemus is like, you're talking crazy cakes right now. I don't understand. Jesus tells him in John chapter three, verse five, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Paul picks up on that language. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Nick, you're a Pharisee, you should know this. Now, we're not gonna read it right now, but what Jesus is doing is he's referring back to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. In that story, see, the Bible's one great grand story of redemption. In that story in Ezekiel, Israel has sinned, and so they are in exile. They're apart from the land. They're out. They are dead. You have to understand, Israel is dead as far as the covenant is concerned. But God comes to them and he speaks to them and says, one day, despite your separation and your sin and death, I will sprinkle you with water and I will give you a new spirit. Jesus is picking up on Ezekiel 36 language and giving that to Nicodemus, which is what Paul picks up on and gives it to us in Titus 3. You guys, what Ezekiel was foretelling, Jesus said was beginning, it's happened. And it's available to you knuckle draggers in Crete and even in Smith County in 2021. There's no other way for you and I to leap out of volume one into volume two. I'm a great sinner. He is a greater savior. Oh, then there's the renewal of the Holy Spirit. We're all through the Old Testament, in Joel, in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, and Isaiah, we're told that he will send his spirit to make their hearts of stone, hearts of flesh, and that the tabernacle and the temple of God will actually be you. Even Cretans 
descendants of Goliath, that the spirit of God will move in. He literally could not be closer in this age than he is right now because the future has already come. Don't you remember? You're from the future, living in the present because of what somebody, Jesus, did in the past. Well, speaking of that Savior, verse 6, this Savior, whom he poured, or the Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God did a thing, poured out the Spirit richly. He held nothing back. He gave all that he had, all that he was, all that he is. Because of the work of Jesus, he sends his Spirit. We have the whole work of the triune Godhead at work in our salvation. Why would he do that? Verse 7, so that being justified, that is, found guilty, that is, found in volume one, he declares me in volume two. I didn't figure out how to turn the page. I didn't build a bridge. I didn't construct a wormhole. No, I was found guilty in volume one. I was declared righteous, placed in volume two. Do you see that? That's the story of my life. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life, that we would become not just tolerated, not just abided with, like, okay, cute, cute, kids from Crete are in now. Also, great, great. We got French people. Yay, French. No, that they would become heirs of the Messiah. So this a few weeks ago. I want to say it again. God sees you. Right now, right here, where you are, God sees you. Not like vaguely, not sort of like, well, I know that there's a God up there and he's kind of, no, 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 no. God sees you, understands you, loves you, and wants your volume to best. So what do we do with all this? This grace works finally comes to a culmination. This is how we actually change the world one set of relationships at a time, one campus at a time, one community at a time, not with policy and procedure. It's through the gospel because only grace works. Three very quick implications. Number one goes like this. Christians are to have compassion, not contempt. Now, like Paul tells Titus, remind them of these things. I know that you know this, but I also get your emails and I see your Facebooks and your Instagrams. Christians are to have compassion, not contempt. I can tell you that much of the rhetoric that we put out there for all the world to see or you put in your email is much more about contempt than compassion. All too often, we tend to look down on those people who are still living in the first volume. Tisk tisk. How could you still be in that first volume? As if you had anything to do with moving yourself from volume one to volume two. We look down our noses at them, forgetting that we each lived out the same narrative for a time, just like Paul. I'm so thankful that Paul says we were foolish, full of malice, envy, hating and being hated. That was Paul, the goodest of the goods. Now, you might be aware, if I can put this really, really close, near and practical and personal, you might be aware that about 120 yards to my northwest, a rally is happening one that we don't necessarily endorse. And I've heard a good many good-natured joke about it this morning. There is a pride parade happening on the square, and they'll be there till 1.30. And I've heard a good many of us say with contempt, well, harumph, 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 because that's what you all say. You all say harumph. Why do you say harumph? Nobody says that anymore, Jim Phillips. I've heard all these harumphs coming on, 
And our tendency is to look down at people with contempt rather than compassion. But what if instead the gospel shone forth? What if it manifested? What if this was the epiphany of God's unmerited favor? Because it is. Be not threatened. You're not going back to volume two or volume one, sorry. No one's going to force you back into volume one. Relax. You are a volume two person living from the future in the present because of what somebody did in the past. See, the brutish way of man apart from Christ makes him or her angry with the things they disagree with. So it causes us to look with contempt on those people that are manifesting the things that we dislike. But the gospel comes along and says, yes, those are Philistines, either over there or over there or over there on the island of Crete, and their sin is great. But the Savior is greater. And if I don't believe that, then I really don't believe that he's greater than my sin or that my sin was very great. We have to absolutely believe that. The gospel comes along and says, the appearing of the love of God to mankind, it has appeared. And now that happens by former lost people demonstrating the same kind of compassion and kindness to people still in their first volume. I want you to understand what I'm saying. When we say the grace of God has appeared, the goodness of God has appeared, the love of humankind has appeared, that's Jesus. But he's taken off. So you know what the goodness and the love of humankind of God in our world is today? It's us. Very literally. Very really. It's us, which begs the question, how's business? Are we more concerned with erecting perimeters and parameters of protection? It's funny how Jesus doesn't ever seem to do that. I bet that dude could have made an amazing castle. He lived in the open, vulnerable and accessible to everybody. Imagine how it must have blown Paul's mind that someone related to Goliath could be an heir of the Messiah. But that's true, and it's also true for us. Number two goes like this. A Christian is someone that repents of their own righteousness. <laughs> A Christian is someone that repents of their own righteousness. Let me repackage that with this very familiar and very well-used quote because I love it. It's from a theologian that's a hero in the faith, a man named John Gertzner. It goes like this. The main thing between you and God is not so much your sin, it's your damnable good works. Do we have a tendency to think, I'm the smart kid. I know all the answers. I'm on the front row waving my hand going, pick me, pick me. And then God finally did. And I'm like, what took you so long? Anyone could have seen. I'm the, I'm the smart kid on the front row. No, no, no. For a deep dive on that, read Philippians 3, where Paul says, my greatest behavior moralisms were actually not just neutral. It was loss. It was a negative. The very best I could do in my own strength was actually a negative. A Christian repents of their own righteousness. It's been said before by Martin Luther, Bear saying again, most of us totally get evil deeds and that they are destructive, but we still tend to think that we're pretty decent, at least compared to all those other people, especially those ones that we dislike. But no, our very best apart from Christ is nothing at best and filthy rags at worst. Third point, I'm going to steal this one shamelessly from, you know, the Apostle Paul. It goes like this. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. I know, I'm totally stealing that one because it's good. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Let me explain. 
about 750 years before first advent, before the first coming of Christ, there was a prophet named Isaiah. And he wrote about a future kingdom, the, the kingdom that would come and the kingdom bringer that would, that would bring it into our midst. And it would be ushered in by this Messiah and what all it would look like. And in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 to 25, he describes that, that coming kingdom and how awesome it would be. And he says, whoever is in that kingdom, the old will have gone, the new has come. And Paul picks up on that language and says, you guys, you guys, you guys, even descendants of six-figured folk from Crete, you are now a new creation. But here's what's fascinating about that little expression that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5. It's not how you're supposed to look at yourself, although it's true. The admonition is, look around. You want to know what the new heaven and the new earth looks like that Isaiah is describing? It's Barbara! I'm not kidding. It's her. That is a walking around in 2021 in Smith County. That's the new heaven and the new earth. Now, it'll get better. No offense. It's going to get even better. But we are to look at one another, recognize that those little people are children of love, as we already sang this morning. And they are little microcosm, walking around personifications of the new heaven and the new earth. Look at one another that way, not just ourselves. This is how the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit can change the world. So let's do that. See, I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a greater Savior. It's all because of Jesus. He's the only good guy in my story, either volume. He's the only good guy in my story. I'm the bad guy. He was a greater Savior, but he became my sin so that I might have a second volume to my story and be his heir and be the very walking around righteousness of God. See, what the first Adam failed to do in the garden, that was his role, that was his job, but he was utterly under-equipped to do so. The last Adam, Jesus, he bound up all of God's plan of redemption through history and scripture so that people like you and me and on the other side of the world in the 21st century could live out our second volume. You see, Grace works. I don't know what the title of your two-volume book is. Mine is, I'm a great sinner and Christ is a greater Savior. But I hope and I pray that you will think on these things and that the Spirit of God will speak to you and yet even through you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the washing of regeneration and the renewal of your Spirit. And I confess, Father, there's so much more that was not spoken this morning that I could have, but I also thank you for mercy that we're done. And so, Father, if there is anyone here this morning who is still living in their first volume, trying all the ways they can to make life work, to somehow approach your throne, would you give them salvation? Would you bring them new life from death? Would you give them light from darkness? They may not be able to understand everything, explain everything, or even like everything, but would you give them the gift of faith that they would believe, that they would be yours? Father, for the rest of us, as Paul tells Titus, we are to be reminded that we are citizens of the coming kingdom. We are from the future, living in the present because of what Jesus did in the past. So may we live accordingly. God, we love you, and we pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.